Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 34. We continue this morning in our fall sermon series, which is called Psalms of My Life. And Psalm 34 is the next passage that I have chosen of of all the psalms that have meant so much to me over the years. Now, Psalm 34 is a psalm where I have benefited and, and in which I love specific phrases and verses in the psalm, but I particularly chose the psalm for, for this morning because I wanted to learn more about why it's in the Bible and what it means. And so I hope to share that with you this morning Let's um, begin by reading the Scripture. And I'll point out as we begin to read, a number of the Psalms have what's called a superscription, which is a few words or phrases at the top. Sometimes it's as short as, of David. Uh, And and in my Bible, my superscription is in all caps. The Bible that I read at home has the superscription in italics. But this superscription not only says, of David, but it tells us the circumstances in which this poem was written. So I'll start the reading with the superscription of David when he changed his behavior toward Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me, let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and delivers them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the reading of your holy word. 
And now we pray that as it is preached, as it is explained, that your people would be encouraged and challenged and that you most of all would be glorified. For we ask this in Jesus' name, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Have you ever been at the wrong place, in the wrong place at the wrong time? I seem to continually find myself in the wrong place in the wrong time, but never quite so bad as David did when in 1 Samuel 21, he was discovered by the king of Gath, whose name is Abimelech, to be the man who had slain so many of his fellow Philistines. In other words, David finds himself in the presence of a king whose soldiers David himself personally killed and recognized as the killer. I'd say David was in the wrong place in the wrong time, but how did he get there? Well, if you start in 1 Samuel 15, you find that the Holy Spirit has deserted King Saul and God has rejected him as a result as being king over Israel. Then in 1 Samuel 16, David is anointed as the king, the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior in Saul's place. And in 1 Samuel 17, in recognition of this anointing, of this setting apart as God's Savior, David goes and slays the the giant, Goliath. And who doesn't love that story? But he does so in a miraculous manner with a smooth stone and a slingshot. In 1 Samuel 18, also in recognition of David's uh, high and exalted status, Saul's son, the rightful heir to the throne, binds his heart to David and, and bends down at his feet in submission, showing that even Saul's son recognizes David as the king of Israel. But in 1 Samuel 19 and in 1 Samuel 20, we see Saul, the, the rejected king, pursuing David and trying to kill him through various means and assassination attempts. And David is running for his life. And so the anointed king of Israel is an enemy and hunted as a traitor in his own land over which he has been declared king. And so what does he do? Well, he flees to the land of his enemies, to the land of the Philistines, to a, to a town, a city called Gath. And there he meets Achish, who is the king of Gath, also known as Abimelech, which is where we meet him in our poem. David is in the wrong place at the wrong time. Akish recognizes David as not only the giant killer, but the one who's killed thousands, even ten thousands of his Philistine countrymen. And so in order to avoid detection and what you would know would follow upon that, he'd be certainly slaughtered on the spot. David pretends to be a madman. And in one of my favorite lines in the Bible, he dribbles spit down his beard. Literally says, David dribbles spit down his beard. And Akish looks at this stark raving lunatic who's frothing at the mouth and said, why are you bothering me with this crazy man? Get him out of my presence. Send him away. The man that he initially recognized, God somehow, and the story doesn't tell us how, put a veil over Akish's eyes And he no longer recognizes David. And the text says in 1 Samuel 21, and David escapes. 
Now this is the poem of his celebration. Psalm 34. I was in the wrong place at the wrong time, but look what God did for me. Isn't that a great story? It's amazing. And I didn't know that before I preached it. I've been reading the Bible a long time. So this is a good reason to come to church. It's a good reason to study the Scriptures. It's a good reason to read through the Scriptures. I find myself constantly learning and being encouraged with new truths. So what are some lessons we can learn from this story? Well, I'm calling my sermon this morning, and maybe you'll understand why. If not, you'll know by the end. The title of my sermon is Resolutions of a Redeemed Hypocrite. Resolutions of a redeemed hypocrite. Here's why I picked that title. David, the hero, David, the anointed one, David, the Christ, David, the chosen one, the friend of God, David was a hypocrite. And we see it over and over and over in his life, but particularly here. David, you're the anointed one. Why are you running away from Saul? David, you're the anointed one. Why are you leaving the land where you have been made king? David, you're the anointed one. Why are you taking refuge with your enemies? Well, he didn't know at the time, and he regretted it later. And this is the poem which describes, as I understand it, the resolutions of this redeemed hypocrite. His first resolution is to glory in God alone. We see that in our text in verses 1, 2, and 3. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast. This is where I'm getting my point here. My soul glories. My soul boasts. You could uh, explain this point to boast in God alone or to trust in God alone. We could put it that way. But I want to define boasting because boasting is an, I'll call it an unpleasant expression of humanity. I mean, who likes to be around a braggart? I'm so good, I can do this, I can do that, I, 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 I. Well, why would we possibly want to do anything like boasting if boasting is so negative? Well, it's an unpleasant human behavior, I say, unless boasting is directed to something supremely lovely. Now, the reason I don't like it when you brag and you don't like it when I brag is because I'm ugly and you're not that that much better. But if we're bragging and boasting in the Lord, He is supremely glorious. He is altogether lovely. Beautiful beyond description, as Elder Rick said in his prayer. So this is boasting. And then he says, uh, Oh, magnify, verse 3, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. Now I used to teach science and We had magnifying uh, devices in the classroom, including microscopes. And you know what a microscope does. It makes something very small, very big. It's also hard to focus if you have glasses, but that's another story. How do you magnify something that is big beyond description? God. How does he say, magnify the Lord with me? How is it that we can make God any bigger than he already is? Isn't he you know, everywhere, and then doesn't even the heavenly expanse, we're told in the Bible, is too small for God. I think of it as God sort of sticking his pinky toe into heaven and say, yeah, I'm in heaven, 
but he's sort of flowing out the boundaries of all created time and space. How do you magnify, make bigger, the biggest thing? Well, you can't. It's impossible to increase God's size or worth. But notice what David is saying. Magnify the Lord with me. I think God is made bigger when we worship Him together. So it's better to worship God with people than by yourself. How about that? Church, isn't that crazy an idea after all? Yeah, I feel close to God when I'm walking in solitude and praying and you know, talking to the Lord. That, those are great times of intimacy. And reading my Bible in my bedroom or uh, on a hike or out in nature or on the beach or when I'm on vacation on a long drive, those are precious times. But it makes God bigger when we're together. Magnify the Lord with me. And you see this theme, this, I'll call it a corporate theme or a collective theme throughout this psalm. David recognizes that God is made bigger when we worship him together. But he also, I think, recognizes by saying, magnify the Lord with me. Remember, this is a resolution of a redeemed hypocrite. God was small for me when I was running from Saul. God wasn't able to save me, so I had to, I had to hitch up my britches and start running, take care of matters myself. I had to go to Akish in Gath. You know, I had to flee to the land of my enemies. I had to, I had to, I had to. And that's a great sign, by the way, in your life. When you start telling me or God or other people all the things you have to do to fix your situation, you need to magnify God. Sometimes a book title says everything you need to know about it, and this one by Ed Welch is tremendous. When people are big and God is small. It's a great book. But the title is great, isn't it? When the people in your life are so big that they're kind of like an eclipse, they, if you can imagine it, they block out God. Now, my hand isn't that big, but if I position it just right, I can block out the sun that's shining in your face. And that's the way it is with sin and people, circumstances and situations. They're quite small, but if they're close enough to you, they can wind up blocking out the most important thing in your life. Magnify. So his first resolution is to glory in God alone. His second resolution then is to cry out to God in trouble to cry out to God in trouble. We see this in verses 4 through 7. I sought the Lord and He answered me and He delivered me from what? All my fears. Those who look to Him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried. That's where I'm getting my point. And the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. Another version says terrors, which I think puts a little sharper point on it. Because troubles are one thing, but troubles that terrify are a special class of troubles that come and get us in our very core. Now this is David's personal testimony. Oh, then he says in verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers him. I, I see in these verses David's personal testimony. Now it's generic. He doesn't say, I was, you know, Achish, the king of Gath, was staring right at me, and then this happened, and then this happened. He doesn't sort of recap everything that we find in 1 Samuel 21. Well, he's just said he wants you to magnify the Lord with him, and so the Holy Spirit in his wisdom has inscripturated for us 
a general version of David's trouble that can be applicable to many of us in many of our troubles and terrors as well. I think it's important to have a testimony, a story. You know, you don't just have one. Day after day, week after week, there's a story of redemption in your life. What has God done for you lately? To paraphrase the saying. Well, He's done a lot. You're sitting here listening to a sermon in a church. That's an amazing thing because if I know you and if you know me, if we had our way, we would not be here. Maybe some of you didn't even want to be here this morning. And I'm not just talking about teenagers. We need a story of God's deliverance from our terrors and our troubles. And maybe the reason you feel so resistant or hesitant about God in your life is that you're not recognizing that He has delivered you when you cry out to Him in your trouble. What about these fears that He says in verse 4? I sought the Lord and He answered me, and He delivered me from all my fears. Well, I think this is an interesting way to, to speak or to write. It's a feature of language where the symptom is used in place of the cause. I'll repeat that. Here, David, in verse 4, is substituting the symptom for the cause. What's the symptom? He's afraid. David's trembling. He's panicking. It might even be a panic attack. He's certainly on the run for his life, and he runs sort of out of the fire pan, Saul, and into the fire, the king of Gath. So that's how he feels. And we can say that God's redemption, when he cries out to God, one of his troubles is that he's feeling bad. And so he definitely needs to be relieved of his anxious cares, of his feelings. You, you know, if you struggle with fear or anxiety, even a panic attack, it's, it's not just a symptom. I mean, it's its own problem all by itself. But what I'm saying is, is that David, in speaking in this way, is also pointing to the cause. He's delivered me from all of my enemies. He's delivered me from all of my difficult situations, even the ones that I got myself into, like running right into the hands of the enemy, thinking like that would help. He delivered me from my foolish choices, my idiot thinking, that way of acting. What are some situations where you need prayer and deliverance from your fears and troubles? Well, one I thought of is that when your fear leads to a foolish choice. Have you ever had that happen where you're afraid and you panic and you do something or say something or go somewhere and you realize, I probably should have, you know, counted to 10 before I made that decision. Another troublesome situation where you need prayer and deliverance is when sin clouds over the truth that you know. You know, David knew he was the anointed king. There was no doubt in his mind. Samuel came and anointed him, and, and it was clear to everyone in the room and everyone in the house. And, of course, Jonathan made it abundantly clear when he delivers his armor over to David in 1 Samuel chapter 18. I mean, David knew that he was acting as the anointed king when he slayed Goliath, but his sin caused him to forget what he knew. 
Sin has that amnesia quality to it, doesn't it? It tends to lead us to minimize the things that we know and maximize the things that we don't. And then the final situation I can relate to, maybe you can, when you need prayer in a troublesome circumstance is when you feel abandoned and alone. It's a horrible feeling to feel abandoned and alone. And sometimes it's just in our minds, but other times it's in reality. You literally have no friends. All of your friends have turned their backs on you, whether it be in social media or in real life, maybe in the workplace, maybe in your family, maybe even your spouse. You feel abandoned or alone. You need to cry to God in trouble, and He will hear you and deliver you from all your fears. The third resolution, not only does he cry to glory to God and alone but, and cry to God in trouble, but David resolves after this, this uh, sojourn in, as a hypocrite in the land of his enemies, David resolves from henceforth, I'm going to live the good life. I'm going to live the good life. Now, what does that mean? Well, he says, starting in verse 8, this, this point takes us from 8 to 14. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life, who loves many days, that he may see good? So you see, in these verses, we hear David clarifying in his mind what the good life is and resolving in his heart to pursue that life from this day forward. So he is resolved to live the good life. I want to look at this verse. It's a beautiful verse. It's one of my favorites. It's why I picked the psalm, actually. It's Psalm 34, verse 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. What does this mean? Well, it's an invitation. It's a command, but it's an invitation. The picture that I have in my mind is of a banquet table or Thanksgiving is coming up, and there may be items on that table that you like. Again, this year, I'm definitely not having that person's pumpkin pie, this person's cranberry salad, or whatever. But in this banquet, all of the food that's spread before you is delicious and delightful. There's only one thing missing. You've got to sit down and eat. And the picture here is one of the goodness of the Lord. Taste and see that the Lord is good. That's the second half of the phrase. And the goodness of God is described in terms of food, something that's tangible, that you can smell, that you can feel, that you can touch, and yes, that you can taste with your mouth. And the only thing between you and the goodness of God is you. You are the biggest barrier to not enjoying the bounteous feast which God has prepared. And see, David is resolving to live the good life. He said, I am resolved to recognize and see that what God has done in my life is so bountiful, so good. It's not God's problem that I'm not doing well. It's mine. I need to sit down and eat at the banquet, which he has so graciously, lovingly prepared for me. Here's a way to think about it. The promised goodness 
is only released when you respond in faith. The promised goodness is only released when you respond in faith. Of course, that requires you to recognize that you need to make the resolutions of a redeemed hypocrite. You see, no one's sitting down at the table who's already full or who has a table waiting for them at home. So you only sit down at the table if you're hungry, poor, tired, and sinning. It's the desperate sinner that cries out for food. And it's the miserable offender that needs mercy and grace. If you're doing fine on your own, you're not going to taste and see that the Lord is good because you're fine. You're good enough as it is. And by the way, that's why we have this beautiful image in verse 10 of young lions. Look at verse 10 again. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Now, a lion is the king of the jungle. Am I right? He's what's called in ecology um, the apex predator. Lions hunt. No, no one hunts lions. Well, we hunt lions, but let's not go there. So the lion is the king of the jungle. He eats and preys and prowls upon all the lesser creatures. So if anyone is going to have enough, it's going to be the lion. Now, you know, there are young lions and then there are old lions. And then middle-aged lions, okay? So old lions when you get old, have trouble keeping up with the young lions, the young dogs, if I may say so. But if anyone is going to have enough to eat, it's going to be the young lion, full of life, strong, keen eyesight, sharp sense of smell. And what David is telling us in verse 10 is that those young lions suffer want and hunger. Even the young lion, the apex predator of of the forest, of the fields, of the plains, that creature, even that creature has trouble providing for itself. But, he says, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. You see, we live in a world of lions and tigers, of apex predators who are prowling around and devouring one another and boasting themselves and slapping themselves on the back and saying, aren't we pretty good at what we do? We get that job, we got the girl, we got the life. And yet even those people, if they're honest, if they're honest, when they look in the mirror, they know they're lacking something. And what the Scriptures are telling us this morning is, if you seek the Lord, you have the good life. You lack no good thing. So how do we make sure that we're pursuing the good life? Well, the first thing I think we need to do is to check how you measure your life. And here I'm going to repeat a couple of things that I've said. What is tasty? He says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Some people say, I'm, I met someone once who said, I, I tried Jesus. I tried being born again once and it didn't work for me. It wasn't tasty to him. Well, what are you describing as tasty? How do you describe something that tastes good from a spiritual standpoint? So you need to check how you measure your life. What's tasty? What makes you happy? Look at verse 8. Blessed is the man 
who takes refuge in him. Another word for blessed is happy or, or well-to-do or uh, well-situated. All of your circumstances are just as they should be. What makes you happy? What, what, what is your way of describing a good life, a, a life well-lived? That's the second way to measure is happiness, tastiness, happiness. And what makes you full is the third one. That's this lion verse. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord are full. They lack no good thing. But also you need to check the way that you live your life because the good life isn't just how you measure your life, taste, happiness, fullness, but it's actually what you're doing and not doing. And that's where a lot of us get tripped up. We've, we feel like we've, got, we've homed in on the measurements We're Christians, we're believers in God, we read the Scriptures, we trust Him, we love the Lord, we're committed to the church. But how are you actually living your life? Look at verses 11 to 14. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Do you desire the good life? That's a paraphrase of verse 12. Here's five things. Keep your tongue from evil, your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Check how you're living your life. Here's a short checklist of five behaviors, things to do and not to do, that is a measure of whether you're actually living the good life that God has intended. Finally, the resolution of this redeemed hypocrite is that David, anchor, and, and we should as well, anchor our experiences in Christ and in eternity. And the psalm closes off with those ideas in verses 15 to 22. What you see as you read through these, and I'm going to read a couple of these verses here, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry, but the face of the Lord, and I'm adding the word but here in verse 16, but in contrast, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. So we're to anchor our experiences in Christ in eternity. To me, the, those who do evil, the wicked, and they're mentioned several times in these final verses, they're, they're not living for eternity. They're living for, for this life only. And what God is saying here in this passage, what David is saying in this resolution, is an utterly realistic perspective on what life is like in this world. And perhaps you've fallen for the lie or no one explained it to you that just because you're following God and you're trusting in Him, that doesn't mean you're going to be free from troubles. No, what it means is that you will be able to experience and understand your troubles in light of Christ and eternity. There's three notes of hope here. In verses 15 through 18, you may be afflicted, but you're not forgotten. In verses 19 and 20, you may be tested, but it's only temporary. And in verses 21 and 22, you are merely a sinner saved by grace. That's the only thing that differentiates you from the wicked who receive these terrible condemnations. You deserve it too. You're just a sinner saved by grace. Well, that's David's resolutions from his enemy's land, a redeemed sinner. He is redeemed. And by the way, we see Christ in this psalm as it mentions the redemption 
Uh, verse 20, all of his bones, not one of them is broken, is an allusion, I think, to Christ on the cross. It's also an allusion to the Passover lamb. And this mention of redemption in verse 22 speaks to the fact that we know that the only way we can be saved is through the life of someone else. So as we leave, we want to apply this psalm, first of all, not being stingy with our struggles. I know you're struggling with something. We all are. Don't keep it to yourself. One of the ways that God has designed or intended or planned for you to be rescued out of your struggles is by sharing it as David does here with, with others. Now, it may not be the whole congregation. David has shared his struggles with, with the whole church throughout time. You might just share it with one other person. At least talk to the Lord about it. I think, secondly, you should identify your fears and what's causing them. Remember I said symptom for the cause. So where are your fears coming from? Why are you so afraid to trust God in a specific situation? You need to identify that. And thirdly, I want to challenge you, especially young people, what good things are you currently seeking in your life? How do you define the good life? How are you measuring what's tasty, what makes you happy, and what brings fullness? And are you actually living the life that God says that you're to live? Do you you connect the importance of your words and your actions not just your actions and not just your words. What good things are you seeking in your life? Maybe some of those things need to change. And finally, what's the most difficult experience you're going through at the moment? What's the hardest thing you're facing right now? You need to anchor your, your journey through this trial in Christ, who's your Redeemer, and in eternity, which is your home. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for your holy word. We thank you that David was kind enough and humble enough as a poor man to cry out and to put his cries in writing to give us a picture of a redeemed sinner, a redeemed hypocrite, something that we all can relate to. I pray, Lord, that David's testimony would be an encouragement to each and every one of us this morning, but particularly for for one of us here this morning who is refusing to trust you, who, who is skeptical or even cynical of the very word of God itself. I pray, God, that, that we all would abandon our own personal project of the good life and seek the life that you have for us, measured by your word and pursuing it according to your way. We know we can't do this by ourselves. We need Christ and his cross It isn't just for people who struggle. It's for dead, guilty sinners who need a Savior. And that's each and every one of us, Lord. I pray, indeed, that we would respond in faith and taste and see that the Lord is good. Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, 
adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.